Well, good morning, friends. It is great to see you and especially wonderful to see so many faces that I've been missing this past summer and yet here you are maybe returning from school or from vacations and gathering with us this morning. So it's wonderful to see you, excited to jump into God's word in just a moment. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord and let's pray that he would bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. God, we pray and we rejoice in the opportunity that we've been thinking about this morning to be those who have been recipients of your grace and who are to go out and share that grace with others. God, we pray now as we come to your word, God, we pray that you would uh, fix our minds and stir our own affections, that we might love you more as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week actually marked the anniversary of Adoniram Judson's birth. Now, you can probably guess with a name like Adoniram, he was not born in one of our generations. He was born all the way back in 1788, and if you're unfamiliar with him, he grew up actually in a devout Christian home. His father was a pastor uh, in uh, a town right outside of Boston, and he went off to college at Brown University, and there in college, he fell in with, with a group of young men who were skeptics, and there were deists, and foremost among them was a guy by the name of Jacob Eames. And Adoniram Judson and Jacob Eames became fast friends, really became best friends. Now, Judson, as a consequence of that, would go on to just abandon the faith of his parents. He didn't want to tell them in college, but finally, after graduation, he sort of broke the news, and he went off to New York City and had grand ambitions to be a great playwright for the theater. But after about a year or two of that, he became quite disillusioned. And one night, he was traveling through a small town, and he had to stay at an inn, and and he hadn't made plans, and the innkeeper said the only room that was available was a room that was right next to someone who was dying. And all that night, this man in the other room, he groaned, and he gurgled, and he coughed, and he cried out in desperation. And Judson was so tormented by the sounds that he could hardly sleep. And he began to wonder, is this man prepared for death? He began to wonder, am I prepared for death? His philosophy had taught him that death was nothing, right? Death was nothing but an empty pit, an entrance into the great unknown. But that brought him little comfort now that he was hearing one in the final throes of death. At the same time, he could also hear in the back of his mind that old friend, that skeptic, Jacob Eames, saying, really, Judson, have you become so weak that you're going to let some superstitious beliefs in religion sway you? Are you going to be spooked merely by a man in the throes of death? Well, the groans eventually ceased. The sun rose that next morning, and Judson made his way down to the front desk and inquired of the man in the room next to him. And the innkeeper simply noted that he had died. Do you know who he was? Judson inquired. Well, yes, said the man behind the counter. He was a young man from Brown University. His name was Jacob Eames. Judson froze. Everything in his life in that moment slowed down. He didn't leave that in for hours. And he later wrote, reflecting on that morning, Lost, 
lost in death. Jacob Eames, my close friend, was lost, utterly and irrevocably lost. Lost to his friends, lost to the world, to the future, lost as a puff of smoke is lost in the infinity of air. If Eames' own views were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning. But suppose Eames had been mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true and a personal God real. Suppose heaven and hell lay in the balance. Certainly, this couldn't all be just a coincidence. And the Lord used that tragic experience to bring the young Adoniram Judson to true faith in Christ. And now burdened by the plight of the lost like his dear friend Jacob Eames, he became passionate for the cause of world missions. But up until this point, there were no known Americans overseas. Not a one. So how exactly is the young Adoniram Judson to go? How is he going to be equipped? Who will support him? Who will provide for his needs? Recognize there's no radical or radius, no IMB or GSI established. None of these things had taken shape. There were so many questions the young Adoniram Judson had had and so few answers. Well, friends, just a few minutes ago, we prayed for a team as they prepared to head overseas for training. And no doubt, they themselves might be thinking through very similar questions that Adoniram was pondering. And as a congregation, we're increasingly trying to make sense of what it would look like for us to engage and support the work of cross-cultural workers. So friends, how do we think about these things together? Well, that is exactly what brings us to our final verses in the book of Titus chapter 3. So I invite you to turn there now. We're going to be in Titus 3, just verses 12 to 15. I'm not sure I've preached on fewer verses in my entire time here at UBC. That doesn't mean it's a shorter sermon. I'll just warn you. Titus 3, 12 to 15. And just know, if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we do provide red Bibles in the seatbacks before you, so make sure you grab that. I'll be referencing it. It would be good to have uh, your own eyes on the text. And know if you're new to a Bible, if I refer to a chapter number, like chapter 3, that's the big bold number. If I refer to a verse number, that's sort of the small superscript number. And I know, as I mentioned at the beginning, many college students returning to campus, maybe parents coming in, getting children settled. So if you're just joining us and stepping into the very last verses of the letter, this letter is penned by the Apostle Paul to his young protege Titus on the Mediterranean island of Crete. And though it is a letter, so to speak, of fraternal counsel between pastors, It's fundamentally a letter about church life together, which is to say it's a letter about the Christian life, which is to say, though it's a letter between pastors, it's a letter that is immediately relevant to you and to me. And we've seen these churches in Crete are floundering under false teaching that's leading to false living. And so Paul sends Titus to Crete in order to finish some unfinished business to complete what's incomplete and see these churches established in the gospel. And so we saw in chapter 1 how we really, Paul focused on the centrality of the gospel in the church's leadership. Right? Paul to Titus, particularly church elders there in chapter 1. And then he sort of steps out a little bit further in chapter 2, broadening the scope, thinking about the gospel life and the witness 
that the congregation, the local churches to have, older men to younger men and older women to younger women and the rest. And then in chapter 3, Paul steps out even a little bit further and helps them think about their witness in the world, chapter 3, how they submit to authorities, how they deal with those among them who are actually in the world, and this morning, how they're to support gospel workers. And that repeated refrain we've seen in Titus is that gospel belief leads to gospel behavior. So it's a kind of duet, Titus is, a a duet between belief and behavior, between doctrine and deeds, between creed and conduct, where each is indispensable to the other. And so we come to these final verses, follow along, read along as I read aloud to us. Paul writes, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to be at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, at first glance, these three verses may seem like a fairly irrelevant travel itinerary, right, of the first century. Yeah, and I know there are a few exhortations sprinkled in as well, but it's full of names and people that are unfamiliar to us. But I think what we're getting here is actually a rare glimpse into Paul's strategy of sort of gospel chess. For here we see Paul moving the players as he will, so to speak, about the board. He's strategically seeking to place this person here and that person there so as to both defend and to strike, so to speak. Only the board, in this case, is the world, and these players are what? They're gospel workers. And I think we could summarize our passage simply like this. The gospel advances as gospel churches send and support gospel workers. It's really that simple. The gospel advances as gospel churches send and support gospel workers. And as we look more closely at the text, I think we're seeing something of first who's to be sent. So again, we're introduced to a host of interesting figures. We're also seeing secondly where they're to be sent. We're going to read of this unfamiliar city named Nicopolis, and we're going to see how they're to be sent, verse 14, such that they lack nothing. And so you could look at these verses as the sort of the who, the where, and the how of sending gospel workers. And so we're going to think about it in terms of a sermon outline. First, what do we see? We see gospel churches are to send sacrificially. That's the who. Second, they're to send strategically. That's the where. And thirdly, they're to send bountifully, right? That's the how. So that's how we're going to sort of structure the message, right? Churches are to send sacrificially, send strategically, send bountifully. And listen, I know right now some of you are thinking, Brad, your alliteration all broke down, right? Strategically, sacrificially, and then bountifully, there's no S. Well, super abundantly just sounded really clumsy, didn't want to use that. So if you can come up with a better word, find me afterward, I'll fix it. All right. Now, you might also be thinking, wow, you, Brad, and Mike worked really hard to coordinate all of this on this Sunday, 
And friends, I wish kind of that I could take credit for it, but just know God deserves all the credit for orchestrating the sets of events that he did on this morning. I planned this sermon card all the way back in April when I had no idea when folks exactly were going to be leaving for Radius and when they would be having basically their final Sunday with us. But God did. God did in his own providence. And when I speak of providence, I speak to the way in which God orchestrates all things for his own glory and for our own good. And friends, God's providence is wonderful. And we're seeing just another reminder of that this morning. Because God's providence insists that everything, yes, everything that happens, it happens because God wills it to happen and wills it to happen in the ways in which it happens and wills it to happen even before it happens. Right? Nothing in our lives is arbitrary. Nothing in our lives is meaningless or left to chance. Even something as simple, friends, as sermon cards in a morning like this. Now that is a lesson not exactly related to our text, but maybe a lesson some of us need to hear this morning. All right, let's dive in. What's our role as a church in sending gospel workers? Just first note, we're to send sacrificially. We are to send sacrificially. So this, again, gets to the who of sending. And it's worth noting, again, right at the outset, how many names in these last verses. If you read carefully, there are actually nine different individuals or groups that Paul either directly or indirectly references. So if you want a fun exercise this afternoon, see if you can identify all nine. We used to live in D.C., and we used to go to the National Gallery of Art, and there's this wonderful painting of Daniel in the lion's den, and it was like, how many lions can you find? And you see three, and actually there are like nine in there, and you're like, there's no way. Well, actually, yeah, there are nine different groups of individuals here. See if you can identify them. Okay, side note. But all that's to emphasize what? Well, in part, the gospel works a team sport. It's never something that we attempt alone. It requires cooperation. It requires accountability. It requires the pooling of resources, often between churches. Notice how Paul wants Titus to join him, perhaps so the two of them can be a pair. And just as Paul had once traveled with Barnabas in a pair, and notice how Zenos and Apollos also traveled together as a pair. This sort of pattern of being sent out in twos actually harkens back to Jesus when he sends out the 72 by two. Point being, we're already seeing how this work is not something we tackle alone. Now in verse 12, we're specifically introduced to Artemis and Tychicus. And Artemis makes his debut right here in Titus 3.12. And actually, we don't read of him anywhere else in the scriptures. And he's named, as you might imagine, after the Greek goddess Artemis, right? The patron goddess of Ephesus. Maybe Artemis was from Ephesus, but we don't really know. But we do know that he was obviously a close associate of Paul, someone Paul trusted to carry on the difficult work that he had tasked Titus with doing there in Crete. Now, Tychicus is also a Greek name after the Greek goddess of fortune and prosperity. So just note how interesting it is that these two workers are named after Greek goddesses. And I think it's noteworthy that Paul doesn't demand that they now take on Christian names. 
It seems there's no effort on Paul's part or their part to whitewash the past or try to hide their pagan past. And I think all that can just serve to highlight the wonderful grace of God in saving sinners. For what makes us Christian is never the name on our birth certificate or what we might change it to, but the fact that we have been blessed with the new birth. That's what makes a Christian. So if you've come this morning, this is a message I recognize in a morning all about sending out gospel workers, and you may be wondering, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about the gospel? Well, the gospel is, just as I said a moment ago, that good news that God saves sinners. If you want to think about that, maybe listen to the message last week online or just look up in Titus 3 and read over verses really 3 through 7. Because the good news is that God, in beautiful and wonderful love for his children, sent his own son to die a sinner's death on their behalf. And why would Jesus have to do that? Well, it's because you and I actually aren't good with God. We're not copacetic with God. We all choose our own way. We want to live our own ways. And the penalty for our rebellion against a holy God is death, spiritual death, physical death, which again is why God sent his son into the world to take our place, to bear our penalty. And we get his life when we repent of our sins and trust in him. And to prove that's exactly what God is about, he raised his son from the grave. So friend, if you are coming and you're unfamiliar with that message, know that is the most important thing that you can understand about our text, that all this sending is because God sent his son to save sinners. But getting back to Tychicus, he's actually mentioned a handful of times in the New Testament. Acts 20, we learn he's from Asia. Twice, both in Ephesians 6.21 and in Colossians 4.7, Paul refers to Tychicus as a beloved brother and faithful minister. And it's from those same verses we learned that it's actually this individual who carried Paul's letters to Ephesus and to Colossae. And he also accompanied Paul to Jerusalem to give the gift to the Jewish saints there who were poor from Gentile believers. In other words, we're seeing here that Tychicus was one of the best, one of the best, one of Paul's most treasured and trusted confidants. And yet, Paul was willing to part with him for the sake of the gospel. Now, just as a side note for those of you who are interested, in 2 Timothy Paul's final letter, so 2 Timothy, even though it comes before Titus, is actually written after it. We learn in 2 Timothy that Tychicus would eventually actually be sent to Ephesus, probably to relieve Timothy, which means if Tychicus goes to Ephesus, it likely means Artemis is the one who made it to Crete, if you're just curious. But either way, we're seeing that when it comes to gospel workers, right, churches, they send their best. They send their best. So just consider the next two names, right? Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos. Now, like Artemis, Zenos isn't mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. And he's the only one mentioned alongside his profession. And maybe that's just to prove that lawyers actually can be Christians. I don't know if you ever wondered about that. I lived in D.C. for years, and I confess I often wondered, is there a single lawyer that's a believer? Right? Here's your biblical proof. Zenos, the lawyer. And of course, we've got the mighty Apollos too, don't we? A Jew from Alexandria, Egypt, he's described in passages 
like in Acts 18, is one who is eloquent, who is mighty in the scriptures, who is fervent in spirit. I mean, think of Apollos like the John Piper of the Jewish world, right? He's the guy that can just read the phone book and bring people to tears, right? That's the kind of guy that Apollos is. And we know he lands in Corinth, and we know Apollos' ministry is so effective in Corinth that he's got a whole band of followers that actually prefer him over Paul, the guy who planted the church. Now, we might expect Paul to feel some level of competition between him and Apollos. Paul might feel threatened, maybe even jealous of Apollos. Again, after all, Paul planted the church, and yet the masses are flocking to Apollos. But friends, Paul never fell prey to petty rivalries. He never made ministry simply about him. So we're not seeing him sideline or in any way undermine Apollos, but instead he's supporting him and sending him and Zenos there to Crete to launch an even bigger mission. And just to highlight that churches want to take the gospel This is, all these characters to highlight, when they do that, seek to take the gospel, they're not sending just like the freshman squad. No offense to you freshmen, all right? But they're not sending, they're sending like varsity starters, MVP level quality. They're sending their best. And friends, that's often hard to do because it can be easy to treat the church like we think about sports teams, right? And who voluntarily trades away their best players for some untested rookies, I mean, unless you're the Redskins, you don't do that, right? Or we don't call them that anymore. The commanders. Some call them the commies. That's a different conversation. Um, But no, we want to keep our best players, right? We want to keep them at all costs. We want to build ministry around them for years to come. We want to build a franchise around our marquee individuals. Don't you think about the church sometimes like that? And friends, sadly, that may explain why all too often those who go to the field are actually far from the best. You know, I was talking to a missionary in the Middle East a number of years ago, and he just opined in his own sad experience how those who often went to the field were deeply passionate, yes, but also very inexperienced, unprepared, and often quite immature And he said, it's no wonder, right? He lamented, it's no wonder that so many burn out and don't make it. But he said, imagine with me and imagine what it would be like if churches actually sent those for whom they've invested countless hours and solid resources into, people who have strong theological foundations, people who have well-honed gifts, time-tested discernment proven holiness, and a thoroughly gospel-centered life and ministry. If churches did that, he said, what do you think would happen? And right before I even jumped in, he just said, I can tell you what would happen. Precious seed would be planted in the corners of the earth, those barren corners. That seed would be planted. That's exactly what would happen, and God would bring the growth. Well, UBC, that's what we want to be about. That right there is what we want to be about. It's why we just prayed as we did for that team as they're heading out a few minutes ago. It's why that many of them have been in our year-long Bible training institute. 
It's why many of them also have participated in our pastoral residency program, that nine-month kind of boot camp in ecclesiology. It's why they've gone through John Henderson's Equip to Counsel together, and now why they're heading off to a year-long cultural immersion program. Why all that investment, right? Aren't the unreached an urgent priority? Didn't we need to be there yesterday? Well, yes, they are an urgent priority. But to reach them, friends, we need more than just warm bodies and boots on the ground. We need healthy, robust, gospel-centered churches planted in their midst. And this only happens when established churches prepare and equip and send their best. You know, Abraham Lincoln once noted that if he was given six hours to chop down a tree, he'd spend four sharpening the axe and only two at the chopping. Well, friends, that's what we need to be doing. We want to be sharpening the axe, investing heavily, and that takes sometimes longer than we might want so that the work can be fruitful and last. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think that sending is losing. I know when we sent out Trey up to Ozark, and we sent out Ryan, and we sent out Guy, I know at times I found myself acutely feeling like this sending was losing. It was a personal loss to me. But we're being reminded here that sending isn't losing in the Bible. No, sending isn't losing. It's multiplying. It's multiplying. Now, that doesn't mean we send all of our best. It doesn't mean we empty out the ranks here. It doesn't mean next week you're going to come and the entire staff's gone. It doesn't mean that. Some need to, of course, stay and raise up and train and invest in the next generation. But many others, some among you this morning, will need and ought to go. Whether it's to support a church plant like Ozark up in Bentonville, or whether it's to throw your shoulder into the plow of a revitalization like Ben is doing at Emmanuel up in Springdale or Terry over at Generations, or to be trained to take the gospel to the furthest reaches of the globe. Right? Like the young church in Antioch parted with Paul and Barnabas, so we too want to send sacrificially by sending some of our best. All right, but second, we're not just to send sacrificially. We're also to send strategically. Second, we are to send strategically. And this really gets to the where of sending. And we're given a, a few clues for notice where Paul wants Titus to meet him. Verse 12, he says, Do your best to come to be at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Now that verb for do your best means make every effort, right? Be at great pains to meet me at Nicopolis. Paul desperately wants his trusted friend and protege to join him there. A reminder, friends, that ministers, workers, just like anybody else, right? They need trusted friends, which means they will have some people that they are closer to, some people they single out, some people they spend time with, right? That's not only inevitable, that's good, but notice he wants Titus to meet him in Nicopolis, for it's there that what? He says he's chosen to spend the winter. Now, traveling by sea, often in those days, was dangerous and difficult in the winter. And so Paul regularly chose his winter locations strategically. And he chose them for the purpose of gospel ministry. Which begs the question, or should beg the question for us, how do we think about where we live 
in light of our own gospel lives. Paul was regularly taking that into consideration. Where is he going to be? Where is he going to be spending time? How is he going to be investing his time in relation to the gospel? Friends, do we do that at all in our own lives? How about where you live and where you choose to work? Do you think strategically about leveraging those things for your own gospel ministry? Do you seek to integrate work and school and home and church into the same community such that right, you can leverage it for evangelism, leverage it for hospitality? Or do you tend to live life fragmented? You know, if you've ever been snow skiing, you might have had that unfortunate experience where you catch an edge and one just ski goes that direction and the other one keeps going this way and it's messy in the end. And sometimes that's how we live the Christian life, right? Just pulled in so many different directions. But that's not how we're to live the Christian life. I wonder how you think even about something as simple as your vacation and your travel, you know, I was challenged the other day talking with one of our members, Hayden Beckwith, because he was sharing how he and Amy had been planning on this trip for Europe for some time. It had been postponed and the rest, but they were excited to go. I think it's next month. And he just happened to notice, yeah, they've scheduled the whole trip around an opportunity to visit one of our supportive workers, Samantha Burgess over in Prague. And I just thought, how encouraging and a little bit, how convicting. I'm like, France, Italy, I didn't see anybody. You know, Here's Hayden like, planning a first European trip, and they're going to go spend time specifically with Samantha. Right? What a wonderful encouragement. What a wonderful example that is. Right? Like Paul, leveraging travel for the gospel. But again, why Nicopolis? Because again, we don't read of this city anywhere else in Acts or in the New Testament. It's a city on the western side of Greece, just kind of south of modern-day Albania. And it was established actually by Caesar Augustus back in 31 in celebration of his defeat of Mark Antony at Actium. And the name literally means, Nike just means victory, polis means city. It just means city of victory to commemorate that defeat. And it became the largest city really there on the western coast of Greece. And if you know anything about Paul's ministry up until this time, all of Paul's ministry has been, well, it's been focused well east Modern-day Turkey, right, where Ephesus is, for example. And then also on the eastern side of Greece, think of Philippi, think of Thessalonica, think of Corinth, all again far to the east. And yet here Paul is in a new city much further west. And Nicopolis served as a kind of gateway to the west, a natural launching point to the west, so I believe, along with many commentators, that Paul chose Nicopolis precisely because it fulfills his desire to go where the gospel has not been preached. Ultimately, we know he wanted to get all the way to Spain. Can't get much further west than that. I mean, I know you can cross the Pacific, but in those days, right, that's as west as you can go. And it's likely why Zenos and Apollos are sent, they're sent temporarily to Crete and that, too, we see is meant to be a launching point, given that Apollos was from Alexandria, right, in, in northern Egypt. It's likely they were headed there, maybe even headed further south and other parts of Africa. And I think part of what we're already seeing, we're seeing this consistent pattern that Mike talked about just a few minutes ago, this pattern of gospel boundaries sort of expanding and pushing out to the furthest, furthest edges of the known word, world so that in the words of Paul, right, he might preach Christ where Christ has not been named. 
That was the focus. That was the emphasis. That's the priority, which is why when Mike defined missions, he defined it as the work of local churches sending gospel proclaimers across cultural and linguistic boundaries in order to, right, for the purpose of making disciples and gathering them into local churches, prioritizing opportunities where Christ has not yet been named and God not yet worshipped. And we're seeing that priority in Paul's life even right here. Friends, it's why we're sending that team to Radical this year, to prepare them to go where Christ has not been named. It's why we're giving new and sort of renewed emphasis to this on our own missions budget, because it is, we believe, the consistent pattern seen in Scripture. And yet, as true as that is, that doesn't also mean, though, it doesn't also mean we're not to support the work of helping to establish and encourage churches where Christ has been named. So notice, Paul does send Titus to Crete. Christ had already been named there. He does send then Artemis after him. Or Timothy and Tychicus, we know, go to Ephesus. Paul himself also spends considerable time and energy and resources on places where Christ has been named. His missionary journeys, if you read them, often include or kind of retracing of his steps to build up and encourage and support the work of those churches that have been planted, which is why we as a church will also continue supporting the work of planting and revitalizing churches both here and abroad. Right? It's not either or, right? it's both and. And yet, nonetheless, what do we see in Paul and in his own ministry, this priority, whether it's Paul or even Zenos and Apollos, of going where Christ has not been named. So if you're following along, right, churches send sacrificially, that's the who. They send strategically, that's the where. Now thirdly, the how. How do they send gospel workers? They send bountifully. They send bountifully. A nice, happy word, right? Notice what Paul says in verse 13. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. That word for sort of sending on their way is regularly used in the Bible in the context of sending supported workers. So earlier we heard read 3 John verse 6. The same verb shows up there when we read that you will do well to send them, these gospel workers, on their journey. Sending them on their journey, same verb. And to do so in a manner worthy of God. Or as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 6, he says, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Notice there, there's Paul again thinking, how am I going to spend my winter? Where am I going to go? Where is it going to be strategic? Okay, how can I do that? So that, notice what he says, might spend the winter with you in Corinth so that you may help me on my journey. Again, same verb. And the verb implies assistance on every level. So food, clothing, money, travel, this verb encompasses all of that. And notice Paul wants Titus, who's functioning there, basically as an elder in Crete, he wants Titus to lead the way. Paul doesn't say gather the missions committee. Not that missions committees are bad, not at all, they can be quite helpful. That's not where he starts. Because when leading the charge, he understands that elders... Those whom the church has recognized as having biblical wisdom, knowledge, discernment. 
they are in the best positions of spiritual leadership and authority to lead out the church and the sending of workers. And how are they to be sent? We read, such that they lack nothing, right? See, they lack nothing, Paul says. That nothing is just brought forward in the Greek for emphasis. Nothing, everything, all their needs, you are to provide. You know, you never find in the Bible that old adage, keep them poor, keep them humble. Just don't find that in the scriptures. Certainly not with the ministry of Paul. Referring to gospel workers, Paul will say they're worthy of double honor, 1 Timothy 5.17, which is a financial term. He says later that the laborer is what worth his wages. Don't muzzle the ox, he says, 1 Corinthians 9 or 1 Timothy 5, hearkening back to Deuteronomy 25. The idea being that those whom churches have recognized to give their life for the gospel, well, those same people have a right to make their living from the gospel. That's Paul's point. So friends, what does that look like specifically? What does that look like practically to see that workers lack nothing? Well, obviously it means we're to send them out with some financial support to see that he or she or they, if they're a couple or as a family with kids, that they're sufficiently cared for, that they have sufficient monies and salaries so they're not living in abject poverty, so they have medical support. But it involves so much more than just money. It involves pastoral support, pastoral encouragement, whether it's through the Zoom touch points that Mike every month seeks to have with our supported workers or the way in which Aaron and I just last month traveled over to Sweden to try to help encourage and serve Johnny and Anna Littell. We hope to do that for every worker we support. That's a good way to see that they lack nothing. It means fellowship on furlough. It means accountability. It means short-term trips that we can send in order to meet very present physical needs. Lacking nothing means we're to provide Again, everything they need for the work, including sufficient training, as we thought about earlier, which means we need to think very carefully about who we're sending. It's a stewardship of resources. We only be wise in that. And who's to make sure this happens? Well, Paul commands Titus specifically to make sure it happens. But of course, Titus can't possibly do all this alone. No, Paul expects the churches there in Crete to get behind the work. It's why he continues. Notice verse 14. He says, And let our people, plural, learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. You know, that expression, devote themselves to good works, it sounds familiar. It's the same expression exactly we saw back up in 3.8. And that really turns us full circle to Paul's ongoing concern that these Cretan Christians engage in that sort of duet, as we said, between belief and behavior, right? Each inseparable from the other. 46 verses, and in those 46 verses of Titus, he mentions works and good works eight different times, contrasting those who deny God by their works to how we're to adorn the gospel by our own works, 2.7, to be zealous for good works, 2.14, devoted for good works, 3.8, again here in 3.14, all to drive home the point that though we are not saved by faith plus works, we are saved by a faith that does work. Right? We're not saved by faith plus works, but we are saved by a faith that does work. 
which is just another way of paraphrasing Martin Luther, if you know the old great reformer. We are saved by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. And of course, the urgent need in verse 14, that urgent need in context is the church sending out Zenos and Apollos well. And this requires the good work of churches. So UBC, it's good to ask us, does this describe us and how we seek to send out those among us? You know, Paul's highlighted the great responsibility to steward our wealth and resources well. And the reality is, and I know we all feel the pinch of rising inflation, and yet even with that, as a generation of Americans, we have more disposable income than any generation that's come before us. I wonder if your own giving agrees with that. Does your own giving agree? Does your spending reflect a life where you're seeking to make treasures up in heaven or treasures down here on earth? You know, I know everything wants to take a bite out of our apple, and our apple sometimes feels quite small to begin with. And then, you know, mortgage and rent is one bite, and then transportation is another bite, and then groceries take a bite, and an even bigger bite, and then vacation takes another bite, and oh, Christmas is around the corner, and God, no, God loves Christmas, right? So we've got to put money aside for Christmas. That's another bite. And if we're not careful, all that we have left for kingdom work at the end is a measly half-eaten core of an apple. What does it say about us? If Christ's church for which he died gets less than a car payment each month, what does that say about our own hearts, our own values, our priorities? You know, I love that UBC has a missions house dedicated to missionaries while on furlough where Jonna and Hannah Morinsky are going to be staying and their three children are with us for the next year as they do the pastoral residency, taking time off from the field. But as we, by God's grace, as we want to send out more and as we want to encourage more gospel workers, as housing prices and rental prices continue to rise, you know, I've often dreamt of just building housing right there, right outside those windows, right along Lafayette. We could put three nice multi-level units, use them for workers on furlough, for pastoral residents, and imagine that they'd be planted right in our community with the largest mission field, the university right next door. All kinds of ways we can be thinking about stewarding our resources. But, you know, it's not just our finances. Maybe you're a college student. Maybe you're a high school student. You have very limited funds. Or maybe you're just starting out and you have little money. Or maybe you're retired and you're living off a fixed income that seems to be shrinking in real dollars every year. Well, we can meet needs by more than just giving. There are things we can be doing. Of course, any of us here can do what? We can pray for workers. I don't know if you've ever realized In our own church directory, we have, starting on page 26, all of our supported workers broken out with descriptions about what they do so you can pray meaningfully for them. Just an encouragement to parents. You want to instill this in your children, the priority of gospel work. Be praying for these workers with your own families. You remember when Travis Burkhalter was with us here recently? He shared that one of the greatest struggles about being a worker in the field is loneliness, which is why emails or notes of encouragement mean so much. You know, any of us can do that. You can be nine years old. You can be 90. You can write a brief note of biblical encouragement to a worker on the field. And you don't need to know them to encourage them with the Bible. Right? We have the same scriptures we trust in. And imagine just if every quarter 
Every one of our workers got a box in the mail filled with letters of encouragement from us back here. Imagine how that might fuel them in the work. And friends, is that not what Paul's doing with this very letter? Notice how he closes in verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Paul's reminding Titus specifically of the prayers and encouragements of his fellow brethren who are with Paul praying for him. Because when we're in the trenches of mucky ministry, we need those reminders that we're not alone. And those bonds of mutual affection and other believers, those are meant to strengthen our own faith. And this encouragement is not only for Titus, but he says for all those in Crete, those who love us in the faith, that seems to be a veiled reference to those false teachers who haven't chosen to love Titus or Paul in the faith, but have denied the faith. And of course, he closes, grace be with you all. Fitting that a letter opening with a prayer for grace would close now with the benediction of grace. Because he's helping us see that the grace that saves us is the grace that sends us. And this work of sending requires the good works of God's saints. That's what Adoniram Judson, that's what he quickly grasped as he thought about the task. And it's why after Adoniram Judson landed in India, he actually sent one of his fellow workers, Luther Rice, back to the States. And he sent him back home in order to raise awareness for the need, to raise funds, to improve training even for the work overseas. So Luther Rice actually founded what was to be the first Baptist university in the South. And that was in D.C. Because actually back then, friends, D.C. wasn't called the Swamp. It was the South. That's what it was. And of course, that first Baptist college to train workers we now know as George Washington University. It's taken quite a turn since he started it. But nonetheless, it still survives. And Judson and Rice gave themselves also to the equipping of churches. Which led, if you know, to the Triennial Convention, which was when churches would gather to pool their resources and help provide for the needs and meet the needs of workers on the field. And that meeting that happened every three years began to happen every one year. And that meeting became what we now know as the Southern Baptist Convention. Friends, that's why Adoniram Judson is often referred to as the sort of American father of missions. Or the father, you could say, of American missions. You can put it like that, maybe. Because the gospel advances as gospel churches send and support gospel workers. In the famous words of Judson, the future is as bright as the promises of God. So will we send sacrificially, sending our best? Will we send strategically, right, prioritizing where Christ has not been named? And will we send bountifully, seeing that all their needs are met? That's what God desires of us. Will it be true of us? Friend, how will you contribute to that? Let's pray.